With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Well, I'm a big believer that when something really blows up in, in media, you don't choose it. It chooses you, right? No one knows the secret formula for blowing up on YouTube. If they did, they'd be, they'd be super rich, right? So, no, I, I didn't plan this. This happened to me. Hello, and welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, for this week's episode, you spoke to internet cook Adam Ragusia. But before we get to that conversation, I just thought I'd ask, how are you doing? Well, there have certainly been better times in our country, but um, on the other side of the violence and repression, it's also heartening to see change happening in front of our eyes. I actually feel pretty hopeful about that. What about you? Um, I right now am feeling the the darkness and the Mm. fear, to be completely honest. I mean, Mm. I am heartened by the people turning out and, and fighting for a better world. It's shocking in a good way that a Minneapolis city council member is looking for ways to completely defund the police in that city. Something that, that was completely off the table is unmentionable, you know, even a year ago. Um, at the same time, I do feel the things that are terrifying and the things that are horrible. I think this is a week, obviously, when the outside world is particularly unavoidable. We have a pandemic. There are police across the country assaulting protesters who are peacefully trying to challenge police violence. There's curfews in a lot of cities. And, you know, I'm from Washington, D.C., so to hear our president threaten to use the nation's military to suppress the people of the nation's capital, it hits particularly home for me. Mm. And everything feels really bad. But at the same time, you know, this is a podcast called Working. And mm. you and I both have our jobs that we do. And, and you know, I think one of the things that you and I are navigating, just as everyone is navigating, is how do you get your work done? Do you mm. shut out the world? Do you mm. let it in to fuel you? Do you, as uh, you know, actors say, do you use it in your work? You know, um, what about you? How are, how are you approaching that? I feel like I'm maybe being a bit of a Pollyanna, but... I swear, at times like this, challenging times are a great time to be a journalist. Um, I haven't been covering either the coronavirus or the uprisings, but I feel really motivated to contribute to the Slate project right now when everyone is paying attention to the news. Everyone, I say everyone is listening, but people are more, they're paying more attention than they usually do. This feels like one of those ideal opportunities just the other day, in fact, um, the spirit uh, really fueled me to tackle a really gnarly invoicing challenge that I've been putting off that maybe sounds very, um, I don't know, out of place. But actually, I mean, that was real. Like I'd been putting something off and it thought, you know, we need to focus. And and, and I actually find it really quite, um, it just gets me excited and, and, and 
that's kind of part of the excitement of journalism, maybe in a in a weird secondary effect kind of way. What about wow. you? Wow, I have really struggled hard against paralysis, mm. um, and really struggled hard to keep moving forward. It, it feels strange to be writing a book about acting in the 20th century <laughs> while all of this is going on. Um, at the same time, I don't think that it's actually possible to shut out the world and get your work done or whatever. Like, I don't actually know what that would mean. And I think sitting with what's going on and feeling what it feels like and not trying to deny or repress that uh, is an actual important part of the process of getting one's work done, you know, um, mm -hmm. particularly since, you know, there are still deadlines. There's still this yes. episode to record. There's yes. still my book to write. There's still, I've got to get my daughter ready for zoom pre kindergarten every morning or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And deadlines are of course, very, very helpful. Our guest this week speaks about the helpfulness of deadlines. And, and we should probably say, uh, this was one of the first interviews we recorded, period. Slate's offices yeah. were still open when you did it. So when you hear very little reference to our current events in this particular episode, it is actually because it was recorded in a simpler time when yes. the uh, coronavirus was just looming on the horizon. And and so it, it may feel like it's beamed from a separate planet, but in a, in a way that can be heartening, I guess. Um, yeah. And the guest that you spoke to is Adam Ragusia. Can you tell us a bit about Adam, who he is and what he does? Yeah, I first came across Adam when he was hosting the podcast The Pub, which was put out by Current, uh, a trade publication about public media. Now, trade publication, public media, those are phrases that typically do not get people excited. Uh, pretty <laughs> sure they've been patented by the sleep inducement industry, but The Pub was lively and provocative and, and just really well put together. It was interesting, and that was clearly because of Adam. Um, he had been a, a radio reporter in Boston. He was also a freelance writer, including for Slate, I should say, where he's published eight pieces, including one I edited that was called Has Paranoia About Looking Gay While Posing in Tiny Trunks Ruined Bodybuilding? Uh, he also taught journalism at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. But as we'll hear in the interview, he's given all that up in favor of making videos about food, and he's doing very well from it. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, I guess I'm going to try to shut out the outside world for about half an hour and uh, take a listen to what he has to say. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. 
Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. My name's Adam Ragusea. I am an internet cook. It's funny that that's the term that you use, because as far as I'm concerned, you're a YouTuber or a food tuber. Do you not see yourself principally as a YouTuber? I suppose I am. I don't, I don't want to define myself by the platform, mm. right? As much as my business and success is, <laughs> is intertwined with the platform, uh-huh. you know, platforms can change and, you know, things can go weird real quick. So an algorithm change, in other words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some nerd in California can like make one change to a line of code and like my entire livelihood disappears. Right. Mm. So I suppose I shouldn't have called that person a nerd. <laughs> Love you. Love nerds. I'm a nerd. Does your food content appear in forms other than video and on platforms other than YouTube? I'm trying to focus more on my Instagram presence. Ah. Uh, the the sponsors that I work with really like to to view your Instagram as kind of an adjunct to what they're buying, mm. and they will often want campaigns to extend over to your Instagram. So I'm trying to be more robust about that there. Interesting. And you know, and maybe some other things will happen in the future. I mean, I you know. God, this is the most gauche thing to say. I have a TV development deal. Um, Nothing comes of 99.9% of TV development deals, but maybe something might, you know? I mean, very, very smart young fellow is is working on it, and maybe he'll come up with something cool. I have no idea. So, you know, I'm just trying to keep my options open. I've been approached by some publishers about doing um, cookbooks, Mm -hmm. and those conversations just convinced me that traditional publishing is a terrible business and I should run, not walk away from it. Uh. <laughs> but I should probably be trying to diversify my business because of said nerd yeah. in California yeah. and risk of said algorithm being tweaked. Well, just one of the many surprises in what you've said so far is you know that you're now focused so heavily on food because this is a really pretty recent change for you, right? I mean, I first encountered you as a podcaster. You were the host of a public media podcast called The Pub. Yeah, it's a trade publication for people working in public broadcasting. And you have been a, you wrote some pieces for Slate. You've been a a freelance journalist. You've been a radio journalist. You were a journalism professor. And relatively recently, you've made this change toward food. Um, How did that happen? Well, I'm a big believer that when something really blows up in, in media, you don't choose it. It chooses you, right? No one knows the secret formula for blowing up on YouTube. If they did, they'd be, they'd be super rich, right? right. Nobody knows. Um, so, no, I, I didn't plan this. This happened to me. Um, like you said, I mean, I've had, I've had a kind of a weird career. I mean, I, I started off in music school. I, I wanted to be a composer. And I was in grad school at Indiana University um, studying composition when I, you know, like like so many people before me, um, wandering intellectual misfits who have no place in the world, you kind of stumble into the public radio station on campus mm-hmm. and you're like, ah, home, right? <laughs> um, it's one of, the, one of the best things about that whole scene. 
And, you know, and that was great. And I had a terrific run in, in public radio that kind of led to podcasting and some other things. Um, and then I tried to, you know, but I always, I've always had like really diverse interests or that's the like charitable way of putting it. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of intellectually scatterbrained. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I was very into music and I was decent at, at it, mm-hmm. but I got part of the reason I kind of, uh, washed out of that scene was just that I, I was so interested in other things mm. and I was bored getting stuck in this one thing. And the job of being like a, you know, a, a relatively low-level general assignment reporter somewhere is like, you get to become an expert in a totally different thing every day. Go down a rabbit hole for a whole day, write your story, turn it in, come in the next day, do it again with something else. And that turned out to be a really, really great life for me. It was also a good life for me in the sense that I'm um, I have ter- I, I'm a terrible procrastinator. <laughs> and not because I'm lazy, I'm, I'm you know, I'm what I am is I'm uh, I'm indecisive. Like mm-hmm. I I I worry, right? <laughs> and so if I can delay having to commit to a decision, I will, and that's very paralyzing, right? Yeah. Um, but the great thing about like journalism, you know, daily journalism, which I worked in for years, is the the deadline environment. You can't. You have to make a decision and go with it every single day. You know, the beast must be fed. And that turned out to be perfect for me because it completely neutralized, like, one of the biggest flaws of my personality, you know? (laughs) So it ended up being really, really good for me. And then, uh, but I've always kind of kept diverse interests and I've cooked my whole life. I love cooking very much. I've always wanted to do some cooking media and, Mm. and... when I got a job teaching journalism at Mercer University here in Macon, Georgia, where I still live, um, it was a very kind of converged media program. And my background was mostly in audio. I was not a visual person. I'm not a visual thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just needed to kind of get better. Like I got good enough on video that I could turn like a 90 second TV news package of which I did many down here. Um, but I just needed to get better in order to teach better. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I think it was, I just, I brought some, brought some gear home from school one day and was like, I'm going to give myself an assignment. I'm going to give my, I'm going to make a cooking video, right? Because I just knew I'd be more likely to do it if it was something that would be fun for me. Uh-huh. So I made two and I threw them on YouTube. They're still there. Um, I didn't throw them on YouTube to like gain audience. I threw them there just to like as a place to host them, you know, so that mm-hmm. my friends and family could see them. Um, and then uh, Christmas break 2018, I took the gear home from school and I made a pizza video. I'd been working on this pizza recipe for many years very intensely. And I finally kind of made this video. It was mostly, you know, again, just like to practice my video skills, but also just because my friends had known that I had been working on this pizza video for a long time. And they were like, when are you going to show us this? We want to try. And I was like, yeah, I'll just show you, you know, in a video. (laughs) So I threw together a video. You know, but that said, like, I, I, I'm a media person, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I do, right? So, like, I knew how to dot my I's and cross my T's and, like, give it a title that was mm. search engine optimized mm-hmm. and give it meta tags and, you know, and give it a good thumbnail. And, like, I knew how to kind of set it up for success, even though I did not expect it to succeed. Mm. I just almost had a habit. Just, you know, I did did a, did a good job on it, right? right. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, just randomly in uh, March of 2019... Um, I suddenly noticed that it was getting a ton of views and and I was like, I know that you can, you have to like meet this kind of minimum view floor in order to get monetized on YouTube. That is to say when YouTube will, um, they'll basically a human being will look at your channel, make sure that it's not, you know, illegal or awful or something. And then they will start selling ads against it and give you a cut of that revenue. Mm-hmm. And you have to meet a certain minimum view time 
in order to get monetized. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, I've, I've way surpassed that. So I applied. And again, it's a, hum- it's a thing that a human being at, at, at Google has to do. So there was a lag. It takes about a month to get monetized after you apply. And while that was happening, that pizza video, like the views were just going up and up and up. And oh. I was like, oh my God, this is all like money that I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to get, you know, uh-huh. this is my one chance. And, uh, but you know, it ter- turned out that there were, you know, there were other chances. Um, and yeah, and I've just, I've been, I'm really, I feel very fortunate. This has all kind of happened to me when I'm 37 and not, um, 27 or God forbid 17. Right. Well, like I, I, I've been around and had enough, I've had enough like kind of false starts on my career and, you know, individual pieces of content go viral, uh-huh. like a couple of slate pieces, um, you know, where I, I know I know what this is like. And I know that when you all of a sudden have a global audience of hundreds of thousands of people like you don't you you grab that bowl and you ride it as far as you can. So mm-hmm. I made another one and another one, another one. And here we are. Has how you actually film and shoot and edit the videos, has that changed since you first took home that equipment? Are you still using that same equipment? No, 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 no. I gave it back to the university. (laughs) Oh, that's right. It wasn't (laughs) yours. Yeah, and they will be getting some donations to uh, uh, reflect the the value that, uh, that they gave me with that. So from that, you can tell that, like, yeah, I'm still kind of approaching things from kind of a rugged DIY kind of method, you know, mostly just because I like that and it's fun. And, and honestly, it's, like, dumb to spend much money on <laughs> on camera and sound gear anymore. Like, there's so much amazing stuff you can do with cheap stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but I've upgraded a bit. I mean, I've got a, I've got a nicer camera body and a few. I mean, le- I mean, here's here. I can sum up everything I've learned about video production in the following sequence of relative quantities. Lighting is more important than lenses, which are more important than camera bodies. Hmm. There you go. That's all you need to know. Uh, good to you know. You have good lighting. You can make like awesome vids with your phone, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. There is a long history of tricks that photographers and the creators of like food TV shows use to make food look appetizing. There's a specific set of tricks and tips and, and you really don't want food to look kind of dingy. Um so yeah, so you need to put light on it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I have really tried to eschew a lot of those traditional food lighting and filming tricks. Huh. I don't like food porn, or I'm not trying to do food porn. Food porn is actually awesome, and like, and there's other people on YouTube, like Jonathan Weissman is a is a great guy who like I don't I'm not trying to disparage him by saying that like he's doing food porn. I mean, he's also doing really high value instructional content, but it's also super food porny. Like uh-huh. it's lots of like super um, high frame rate shots that you slow down. You get these really sexy, you know, the the sauce, you know, drizzling across the food in a very sexual kind of way, right? <laughs> like it's you know, it's like that's that's part of the appeal. I for what I'm doing, I'm trying very hard to not do that. Um, and and I, I've believed in my entire kind of creative life that limitations set you free, right? Um, you should always embrace your limitations because they're, they're what will kind of make you, you. They're the ones that will force you to come up with creative solutions that, that distinguish you from someone else. And, you know, an example would be like, in my music, my, my, my illustrious music career, um, I don't know. I mean, like I've, I've done some tunes I'm pretty proud of. And like, uh-huh. and one of the limitations that I chose to embrace early on was that like when I kind of transitioned from classical composing and did more kind of, you know, arty pop songs was that, you know, we lived in apartments and, you know, I, I couldn't have a drum set. Right. Mm. So I just got a whole bunch of tiny, tiny little hand drums 
and I would mic them really, really close with a large diaphragm mic, and I would just kind of tap on them. They're just little teeny taps, right? <laughs> and you mic those real close with a with a big beefy diaphragm on your mic, and like you get these really cool sounds. And I was really proud of and happy of the kind of different percussion sound that I got in my tunes that were because I couldn't piss off my neighbors with a drum set, right? <laughs> yep. Like I think that that kind of stuff is awesome. That's where creativity lives. So. I tried to embrace my not knowing that my not knowing my way around a camera that well, right? Uh. And I'm not trying to write do like super sexy food. I'm trying to do really functional food videos, you know, sort of almost like clinical food videos <laughs> that just show you honestly what the food will look like at its various stages so that you can do so that you can cook what you want to cook, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to razzle dazzle you or make you think that the food is better than it actually is. Now, you still need to heighten reality a bit, generally with just extra light, right? Just mm. because you just, you know, you, we our eyes adjust for, for light in amazing ways um, that cameras don't. Once you start playing around with a real camera, you realize how dark it is inside all the time. <laughs> yeah. Inside is so dark. Um, and so you need some extra light. But I, when I kind of play the lighting rig that I kind of ended up landing on, is this kind of ring light situation, like the kind that, like, you know, makeup vloggers would use Uh. to hide their blemishes and make themselves look all glowy. The reason that I used that was because when I first sort of designed my home shooting setup, I designed it to be something that I could use to shoot in my real family's kitchen with my children running around while I was also working full-time as a university faculty member, right? Uh So I wanted it to be a single-stick setup. Everything would be on one boom, right? Uh So that's why I went with the ring light, because you put the camera into the ring light, right? Uh You don't have, like, separate stands for for the lights and a separate stand for the camera. Everything is on one stick, Uh right? So I designed it to be this one thing that could that could then you know i just could throw in the corner when i was done shooting and i could bring it out really quick and shoot with it um and what that practical limitation ended up giving me was this kind of ring light look that is unique like Mm. i don't think anybody else has that it puts this very unnatural glow on food (laughs) that i find very kind of quirky and fun as opposed to super sexy Mm. I really try to respect my audience's intelligence and time intelligence Mm. and time right Mm. um Part of the ways I show the, I try to show them respect for their intelligence is by not trying to razzle-dazzle them. I try to show them respect for their time by getting to the fucking point, right? <laughs> and, you, you know, lots of YouTubers who are, they're so, they're very talented and they do wonderful things and a lot of them way more successful than me, so what the fuck am I saying? <laughs> um, but, like, I still get annoyed by their stuff because they'll, they'll turn on the camera and they'll be like, hey, y'all, yes, don't forget yes. to... Like and smash that subscribe button. I, I flipped that around. Um, and and they'll, you know, bullshit. And they'll say, like, you know, some people were asking me to make a video about this. And I think that's a really, really good idea. I was like, wow, what a good idea that would be for a video. <laughs> so, you know what, y'all? We're going to do that video today. So let's do it. And then they hit the theme music a minute and a half into the fucking video, right? And then they come back and they start getting into the thing. Just go there. Don't tell them what you're going to tell them about. (laughs) Just start talking about it. Just get there. Right there. Right? (laughs) You're right. We'll be back with more of June's discussion with internet cook Adam Ragusia after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. 
Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline. Send them to us at working at slate.com. And even when we can, we'll put those questions to our esteemed guests. Welcome back to Working. I'm Isaac Butler. We now rejoin June Thomas's conversation with Adam Ragusia with a discussion about his writing process. So I'm wondering, do you do things like, how much do you script or storyboard your videos? Um, They sound very loose. You don't appear to be reading from a teleprompter. But at the same time, they're so tightly argued. I know you're not talking on the fly. Sure, most people who study these things might believe that eating a big chip of Teflon would do nothing bad to you, it just pass through your system. But what if they're wrong? You can always find a dissenting opinion, and the scientific consensus has a history of being wrong. And I'm not just talking about super So to what extent are you scripted and storyboarded? And, and how, on a general sense, or in an average video, how much does the final product match up with the original script slash storyboard? Well, I sort of, I have two basic recipes, right? I've got like original recipe, which is the the recipe videos that I do on Thursdays. And those are like straight up cooking videos. I don't appear on camera. Um, it's basically radio with pictures, mm. um, which is a very comfortable, it was a very comfortable medium for me to kind of start with, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm doing a recipe video, the first step is just recipe development, um, which is this whole other process that we could talk about, whole other creative process. Um, once I have the recipe, I will shoot it and I've tried lots of different things. I've tried doing multi-camera shoots of recipes. I've tried doing single camera but cooking it twice or three times, which is I think how a lot of Food Network shows used to be shot was they'd like they'd shoot it once at a wide angle and then Rachel Ray would go and cook it again and they'd <laughs> shoot it from a tight angle, right? Interesting. What I've eventually landed on is like to keep it really simple, I do a single camera shoot on most things and I just shoot it once. I just go I just plow through and I just move the camera a lot. And part of it is about, like, leaving myself as few options as possible in Uh, the edit. uh Because if I give myself a lot of (laughs) options, I will be paralyzed with indecision and then I won't make deadline. Right? Right. So... That's that. The process there is I'll shoot the recipe. I will then sit down and look at the footage and I'll sort of scrub through the footage. And in scrubbing through the footage, I will write my script. Mm. Um, I will then go into my voiceover booth, a.k.a. my coat closet where I'm talking (laughs) to you now. And I will then read that script and and maybe that sounds kind of natural, but it's totally read. I mean, it's just, you know, I've been I've been reading script into yep. a microphone my entire professional life. I've gotten reasonably good at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'll do. And then I'll go and then edit and edit the video to the voiceover. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty simple process. So that's how the recipe videos come. That's original recipe Ragusia channel. Uh, Extra Crispy is the videos <laughs> that I do on Mondays, which are videos that are about food but aren't a recipe. And I really consider those to be journalism, right? It's, yeah. it's lots of things about food science and food history and food safety, um, food culture, you know. And that stuff is a little bit different 
um, technically different because I I would never have enough B roll footage yeah. to like cover all my script. So I realized when I started doing those that I was going to have to be on camera and talk to the camera, which is super uncomfortable for me because I don't you know I haven't I don't have an experience with that. Um, I don't like thinking about my appearance. And it was just not not awesome. And I, I looked not awesome in the first few ones. I, I think people often commented about my eyes looked very wide. Oh, I think it was just all of my te- all of my tension went straight to my eyes. Oh right? my goodness! Wow. Because it's really tough to like you have to like stare dead into the lens of the camera, yes, right? Yes. Which and it's really tempting to kind of look to the side to look at the LCD screen to like yeah. see how you look. Yeah. But if you do that, your eye line will be off, right? Yeah. So you have to focus. It's really, it takes a lot of discipline at first, at least I found, to look dead into this black lens of the camera halfway across the room. <laughs> Real tough. So when I do that, I am working from a script. I've written a script. Um, do you have a teleprompter? I do not have a teleprompter. I've explored some home prompter possibilities. Mm. I think they'd be more troubled than they're worth mm. just because they, A, they take a long time to kind of set up and tear down. Yeah. And I shoot in my family's actual home kitchen, right? right like right. I can't, it's not a studio. I can't leave everything up. I set up and tear down every single time I shoot, right? Yeah. So that was a problem. And then they also, because I wear glasses, you end up getting some weird reflections yeah. on your glasses, which yeah. is a thing that you can see. Uh, and a lot of YouTubers who work with prompters, you'll see some blue reflections in their glasses when they're reading from prompter. So what I do is I have my script on my phone. I look at my phone. I try to internalize, memorize, you know, about two, three sentences at a time. And then I put the phone down and I deliver them to camera. And I try hard to, rather than memorizing the specific wording, I try to kind of internalize the idea Uh and then present the idea to camera. So sometimes it comes out with some different words. A few times, especially when I'm doing sciencey or health oriented Mm -hmm. videos, like it's, there's, there's a lot of very serious consequences if the wording yeah. is a little bit off. Yeah. So I really have to deliver those verbatim, yeah. right? Yeah. But in general, yeah, that's what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of, I, I do go a couple of sentences at a time. It takes me several passes to get it. And then I pick up the phone again, internalize the next little paragraph and then repeat. And it usually takes me for those Monday videos, usually takes me about an hour and a half to, to shoot all of that talking head stuff. And it's one of my least favorite parts of the job. I don't like it. That's generally about 10 minutes of you on camera, approximately. Yeah, yeah for a 10-minute vid, yeah, yeah, you'd have about 90 minutes of string. Wow. I'm curious about the extent to which you optimize for views, because, I mean, if, if videos about steak and pizza do best, have you been tempted yeah. to only make videos about steak and pizza? Certainly whenever I do pizza, those things are huge, right? Like yeah. I had a, another pizza video recently that got a million views in, in less than a week, Yeah, you know? yeah. And so it's tempting to do that, but I also think that you want to be careful how often you go back to the same well. Yes. And you want to show your audience respect. And um, what I find is that, you know, if you do kind of clickbaity type stuff, um, you know, you'll never believe what happened when I did this to my steak, right? Right. and you tend to see your numbers will be really big at first, Mm -hmm. in like the first couple hours, Mm -hmm. and then they'll kind of... What I find is that, the, and then they'll fall off. Whereas if I give people an honest to God, good piece of content that teaches them something that they actually want to know, they tend to reward me with their viewership. There have been times in, you know, recent history of journalism, 
first with the rise of blogging and then to a certain extent with podcasting. And some people said that you could live anywhere in the country rather than having to pay the insane housing costs in places like New York City. I'm not really sure that was true. For the most part, it's still a big advantage to be close to, like places where there are movie screenings and events and people who you can meet with uh, coming through. But it seems like you can do what you're doing. I'll shortcut it as be a food YouTuber living in Macon, Georgia, which does not seem to be very much of an expensive place to live. So I guess my question is, Adam (laughs) Ragusea, are you living the dream? It sure feels like it, man. How is this not the dream? Like, I'm talking to you from my my absolutely beautiful restored craftsman bungalow in Macon, Georgia that I bought for $145,000, oh, you know. Stop. Um and That's my rent. And yeah, and like, I mean, do you want to talk money? I mean, do you want to Yeah, I'd love to. Do you want to know? Yeah. So, assuming the coronavirus doesn't completely wreck everything, this year, I should make like six, seven, eight times what I made per year as a college professor, which is just crazy. Yeah. And now part, you know, you might think like, oh, my God, Adam, why are you why are you subjecting us to all this advertising if you're making so much money? That's way more money than people need. And it is, especially in Macon, Georgia. But it's precisely because, like, I think this is a very vulnerable career mm-hmm. um, to vicissitudes in the market, shall we say. Right. Yeah. Like all of my advertisers are these like Silicon Valley companies that like. I hope they I hope they do well when tough times come, but in the past similar companies haven't, right? Yeah. So I'm you know, I'm just saving. I'm just saving, 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 saving. And so when the economy tanks and the YouTube, you know, uh, advertising market completely tanks and all of your other favorite YouTubers are like, sorry gang, I gotta go, I gotta go get a real job. I'm gonna not. I'll I'll be here making videos for you. That's why I'm making more money than I need right now. Can you say to what extent um, or what division of your income comes from sponsorship and what from YouTube? Yeah, it's it's about half and half ah. comes uh, about half of my money comes from the ads that YouTube sells against your content. Those are like the pre-rolls that come before your video mm-hmm. um, that you clicked on. And about half comes from sponsorships that I do inside the video that are sold by um, my agent, Colin West, who's the best. And I was so lucky to fall in with an agent. I couldn't imagine trying to do this by myself. I was going to ask if you had a team. I mean, is Colin West the only collaborator that you have right now? Uh, Uh, Other than Lauren, my wife, who... um, Well, I was wondering about that, too, because, I mean, as you've said, you work from your home. That's your kitchen. That's your wife in when you're making a Valentine's Day dinner or sometimes she's just in mm-hmm. the video. So those are your kids. Do you ever feel like you're sharing too much? I mean, is that one of the requirements for for making money and making videos for you? Certainly, like my philosophy about how media has changed over my lifetime, I've often summed up with the single sentence, which is that authenticity is the new authority. Um People want to know you, and that's how they come to trust you, rather than simply relying on some artifice of authority that I'm so-and-so food magazine, and Uh therefore you should believe what I say, right? Yeah. Um, People see through that now because of the internet. Yeah. So I think it's important to show them a bit of who you are. I also think fundamentally people like that I'm not 
somebody in a studio than I'm like a person in your kitchen, just like you. And that's why I <laughs> don't make pointlessly elaborate recipes that are all about razzle dazzling you. They're like things that are supposed to be practical for people living actual lives who don't want to impress someone or, you know, just be dynamite with their food on Instagram. They just want to like have something good to eat and move on with their day, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it, but I also, I keep a lot of my family out of it. You know, yeah. my, my, yeah. my children's faces are never in the shots, you know? Well, I have a question about comments. Mm-hmm. It seems that comments are, are something that, again, has undergone a big transformation over the years in journalism of different kinds. Like at various points in Slate's history, we've had comments on pages. We've we've had sections of pieces asking for like input from commenters. Um, and then we've gone to other extremes, which might be now where like they're there, but we kind of ignore them. We certainly don't have any real <laughs> incentives to engage with them. I didn't ignore them. If anybody wants to dig up some dirt on Ragusea, <laughs> go look at the comment threads on my slate pieces. I got into it with people. <laughs> but on YouTube, it seems from all kinds of videos, not yours, but on other videos, I hear people say, you know, they, like, they're asking questions that they can't possibly care about. Like, what do you think about this? And so I've gleaned that the YouTube algorithm does still value engagement with commenters. Um, who knows? I mean, it's it's just a feedback loop in the end. But you, I've seen you get into it with them. Um, yeah. You know, it's not a good thing. Not a good habit. <laughs> not good for my wellness. Yeah, but you obviously can't resist that. Is is that just like because you're a journalist? When people say dumb stuff, you have to push back. I. Uh, I mean, there's so much to say about that, and a lot of it kind of connects to like my own just personal failings you know like i i have an overly pugnacious streak and i have a very inflexible sense of justice <laughs> right that's not a good thing you yeah, know yeah, yeah but it's also like it gets to kind of bigger things things that are bigger than me about the internet which is that like the best and the worst thing about the internet is how it has empowered everyone to have a voice and be heard yeah you know that is the best thing about it and that is the worst thing about it is convinced everyone that their opinion matters when it doesn't mm. when they've often not earned an opinion mm. they haven't like learned enough about the thing or paid enough attention or watched the fucking video all the way through yes, yes. before you leave that yes. shitty comment yes. about something that is directly addressed yeah at 7 minutes and 23 seconds yeah What's the biggest challenge you face while making videos or, or in this new kind of food internet creator uh, phase of your career? I don't know. I actually haven't found it that hard. All right. I have one, <laughs> of, I have one other final question then. Do you... No, no, no. Like there's, there's, like there's, there's a good answer there, right? Which is, yeah. which is that it's like, you know, I've kind of been setting myself up for this. Like yeah. a lot of people have been like, where, you know, where did this guy come from? How is he so good at this all of a sudden? And it's like, well, because I'm not good at it all of a sudden. Like I've done a whole bunch of things and sucked at them, <laughs> you know, in various ways in order to get the various skills that I've put together in the quilt that has allowed me to do this. And the one of the biggest ones there, one of the biggest lessons I learned and where I'm so glad, again, that this happened to me at 37 and not 27 or God forbid 17, is that I've learned that you you. The worst thing you can do in any creative endeavor is wait until you're good enough. Mm. Is to wait until you feel as though you're good enough. Because you're never going to be good enough. And that's why I like, ultimately went nowhere as a composer, uh, totally aside from the fact that there's no way, I mean, even really talented composers can't go yeah. anywhere as a composer anymore. Um, you know, like I just, I would stress out. You know, I would, I would not want to put pen to paper until I really, really had it, you know. And as a result, I just didn't get enough reps, you know. I didn't mm. suck enough 
until if you just need to go out there and suck until you don't anymore. That's the that's the most efficient way to get better. And so I'm, you know, 37 and I have this totally, you know, fully developed sense of self and I don't really care what, you know, people on the internet think about me that much, um, that much. Um, <laughs> and so I got out there and I sucked and most of my, my early videos are kind of terrible. Um, I think, you know, but because I was willing to kind of learn in real time and I'd gotten comfortable enough with myself that I could let myself do that, my learning curve was really, really steep and I got better really, really fast. And as a result, nothing about this has been very hard. It's been pretty easy. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. June, one thing I found particularly fascinating about this conversation is how open Adam is about the commercial aspects of his work. A lot of people who make their living from their creativity really do not want to talk about that aspect of their lives. But it seems like it's very front and center in his process. You mean about how well he's doing, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. But also just about, you know, the business concerns of what does a brand want to see from Instagram, you know, integrating that with YouTube, how long the videos need to be, you know, like uh, there's a way in which his creativity is all about the Benjamins, but not in a way that feels necessarily crass. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, he really wanted to talk about how well he's doing. And I appreciate that. I, I want people to get, you know, down and dirty with their, you know, are you doing well? I mean, that's a really basic question. Do you have insurance? Like, are you struggling? Those are questions that I think the answer is yes for a lot of creative people. So when someone isn't struggling, when someone is doing well, I'm really glad to hear about it. He also, though, seems genuinely to enjoy the work that he is doing that is also being so well received and well compensated. Um, I've always hated that thought that if you're making money out of your creative work, then you're selling out. It's bankrupt artistically and all of that. And, you know, when I watch Adam's videos, especially the non-recipe ones, they're clearly, to me at least, pieces of opinion journalism. They sound, they might no, they have a visual aspect that his radio and podcast work didn't, but they sound very similar to the takes he used to offer up on the pub when he was, you know, giving his opinions about public journalism. And now he's giving his opinions about food. Um, and the fact that he's doing well, rather than facing this kind of ceaseless stress of trying to eke out a living from standard journalism, it warms my heart. And the fact that he can do it from a low-cost home base like Macon, Georgia, well, I'm glad someone at least is getting to live the dream these days. <laughs> right. Uh, and yet, on top of that, of course, being focused on those particular aspects of the job creates certain limitations. And he's very open about that, right? He said that thing that I, I hear a lot of artists say, and that I truly believe myself, that limitations set you free. That, you know, it's within the box that the real creativity happens. Um, although I'm guessing in our current moment, 
most artists in the United States feel probably a little too limited. But uh, yeah. do you feel that in your own work that there's a way in which limitations like word count and budget and things like that actually help unlock your creativity? Should we impose more limitations on this show? Uh, not too many. I think our self-imposed restriction that we'll be talking to people with creative jobs, however liberally defined, that's that's tight enough for me. Um I mean, I, yes, I have, on a basic level, I think that's true. You know, when you just say, oh, what do you want to write about? Write a piece. Like, that's just a recipe for absolute paralysis. And I do think you have got to write three times a week. You have got to write this many words. You have got to write on this topic. It sounds backwards, but that can be quite liberating. It can really, you know, it, it's a forcing mechanism, but it also really helps generate ideas in my experience. I have to say, though, I associate a love of limitations, especially with the world of theatre. In other words, <laughs> your world. Are restrictions an artistic love of yours, Isaac? I mean, yeah, when you work in the theatre, you have to learn to love restrictions because there's so many of them from how many people can see your work in a given night to often what the budget is. And, you know, yeah. a lot of the work of mine that I think back on most fondly is stuff done in a, you know, 40 seat basement. Yeah. Even I mean there's believe me, there's stuff that people have spent more money on that I that I treasure as well, but that moment of I have to tell this moment in the story but I actually can't literally do what it requires because I don't have that money and I have to figure something out. That's very joyful for me. I actually really 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 I really enjoy it. And I often as a freelance writer feel the paralysis, you know, when an editor is like, "Yeah, pitch me something." Yeah. I'm always like, "Something." But something yeah. could be anything. Um, and I think a big part for writers of the tyranny of the blank page is that you actually can do anything with that page. And that's what's scary. Whereas once you have a couple pages going, you create this sort of frame that you have to be within. And uh, Adam Ragusea is playing within a bunch of different frames. And one of them, which I think is really wild from a cultural criticism perspective, I guess, is YouTube. You know, you think like, oh, well, it's a short video. But the platform actually creates this sort of genre that has to do with length limitations and a relationship with your audience and certain, uh, you know, what a food video on YouTube is meant to look like is not what any short film about foods meant to look like. Mm -hmm. It's its own uh, uh, thing. Do you watch a lot of YouTubers? Do you have your eye on the ball of kind of what's going on in that world? Because it feels very foreign to me and I'm mostly just terrified of what's going to happen when Iris discovers it. Yeah, I watch way too much YouTube. For a while there, I was really hardly watching any television and just just sort of sitting in front, you know, I, you, I can watch YouTube on my, you know, through an app on my, you know, my big old TV. And I would just sit there and sit there and sit there. And, and you know, it's very niche. It can be very satisfying um, when there's something that you're craving. You can almost certainly find it on YouTube. Uh, I mostly watch crafting videos of one sort or another. I find them very, very soothing and right now very distracting, which, again, I don't know if that's good, but it's something um, that feels good. And I have to say that some of my favorites are works that are objectively failures as works of art, definitely, but even as pieces of video. They do all of the things that Adam called out bad YouTubers for. They waste a lot of time talking about what they're going to talk about. They last too long. They're poorly edited or not edited at all. I watched one recently where the person went to it to take a phone call and just like left the camera rolling and didn't edit it out. And I still sat there and watched it. 
But, you know, if they're doing something I'm interested in, something I want to see, then I'm very forgiving because it's all about the content, not the packaging. If I am curious about a topic, if I just am craving something, it scratches that itch in a way that more professional media doesn't. I mean, YouTube will never beat the production standards of TV and video, but it is really about connecting and, and just providing stuff. Um, you know, it's like the old days of the web, um, as well as being this huge Google product that um, has a lot of evil stuff on it. But it really is, um, it just feels like you're finding your people, whether that's a few thousand people who are interested in paper crafting or five million people who want to know more about pizza. Well, Adam Ragusia has clearly found his people, literally millions of them. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about how he did that uh, for today's episode. So thank you so much for talking with him, June. Absolutely. Uh, it was a conversation I enjoyed too. If you enjoyed this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Adam Ragusia for being our guest this week, and enormous thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Ruman Alam and comedian Cole Escola. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.